This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. So yesterday we had the horrific news that 27 migrants have passed away in the channel on their way across. Now, James, this, of course, is a gruesome reminder of the dangers of crossing the channel in the way that many people are doing. But the government doesn't seem to have any clearer idea yet of what to do. Is this an impetus for more action? Yeah, I think this is a reminder of the kind of appalling human suffering that is coming from this problem. But there are no easy solutions to this problem. And I, I think this is one of the difficulties because I, I mean, the, the, the first thing to say is when you look at the, the wreckage from this vessel, you realise just how immoral the people running these people smuggling operations are but they are in november in the dark putting people in a kind of dinghy that you might float down a calm river where you could easily swim to the bank not try and cross one of the world's busiest shipping lanes i think the problem is is how do you solve this problem within the confines of international law and or and all the conventions that the UK has signed up to. I think it's it's very difficult to see how you do that. And I think the other problem that you've got, you know, is the the emphasis from Boris Johnson and Priti Patel is, you know, the French must do more. And, and yes, the the French could do more. But I think that you are always going to have a problem, which is the, the number of asylum people claiming asylum in the UK. Yes, it's at a UK recent high but it's not as high as it is in some other european countries and you've also got a problem which is there are more and more people on the move because of events in the horn of africa i think the situation in afghanistan is going to lead to more people being on the uh, more people trying to um becoming refugees as well and the question then becomes you know how do you deal with these pull factors and i think the fact is it is known that if you can get to the uk it is very hard to... You've got a decent chance of not being removed. And, and then the other thing which is very difficult is British Patel was again talking today about turnbacks at sea. I think one of the problems with turnbacks at sea is if you try and turn the kind of vessels that people are crossing on round, they're very likely to capsize, at which point I think any civilised country has to pull people out of the water. And, and I think the thing that perhaps most struck me about how intractable this problem was was that by about kind of 8.30 this morning, there were reports that three more boats had arrived on the coast. You know, even hours after the news had broken of, of these deaths, people still think it's worth taking the risk. And I, I really struggle to see what the answer to this problem is. Now, you know, I, I think you could make a case that maybe offshore processing would reduce some of the pull factors. But the truth is this government has been looking since 2019 for somewhere to do that and hasn't found anywhere. So, you know... I don't quite see what the example is, and people point to Australia, but you know, the places where Australia was trying to do this were kind of a just off this route, so you weren't having to bring people to the country and then take them there, and, and also they, they, they were economically incentivised to do it in a way that you know even a country like Albania, you know, are, is not going to be offered enough money by the UK to make it feel that it's worth its while. Mm. And Katie, we recently spoke about the security of Priti Patel's position in all of this, given she's ultimately the minister accountable and she still hasn't been able to solve it. Do you think that there's an understanding that this is a very difficult position for her to be in and therefore, you know, 
and the sympathy for her in her mission or are people expecting her to be doing more? I think as James touches on, the fact they've been trying for so long to come up with a solution to this infelicity means that I don't think there are, there are hopes there's about to be an immediate switch. I think that the fact that we've had such a tragic incident on the channel, you might think that was a moment for pause and reflection, yet it feels it took about an hour or two before France and the UK started trading political blows over it. So I think that the where you might think an event like this could lead to both sides uh, being more collaborative could still do it doesn't feel like that looking at the various briefings and comments today instead you have um you know pretty patel ultimately saying it's up to france to stop refugees crossing the channel in small boats and implying really this is uh you know the responsibility of the french government and lots of questions to why uh you know the French officials there didn't stop this boat from, you know, leaving. Why more boats are going today? And actually, if anything, it feels as though the debate is growing more bad-tempered between the two sides. Um, so I think in terms of a solution, it's really hard to know what's going to come. I think in terms of uh, working out an agreement with France, which does seem to be the probably the easiest or the solution that had the most immediate impact, that seems as though it's going further away. James, how fair or accurate are these broadsides at France? Because obviously we hear a lot about, you know, these these rumours that the French are not doing enough to stop them. But there's also this picture that that's in the papers today of supposedly a French patrol boat, a patrol car literally watching migrants taking their dinghy into the sea and not doing anything. I mean, is it fair for us to think that the French could be doing more? So the French could could clearly be doing more. But there is also, I think, a, a practical problem, which is the French are never going to care as much about people leaving their territory as the UK will about people entering it. And I think there is a feeling that, you know, in, in some European countries that, you know, look, you know, the Mediterranean, countries of the Mediterranean coast get the brunt of these asylum claims. They've got, they, they still have a higher number of asylum claims than the UK does. So kind of almost what is the UK complaining about now? That, that that would be a kind of caricature of the French position. Obviously, it's more nuanced than that. And I think, you know, the French have done some things with the money that the UK has offered to try and help deal with the situation. But I think it is, it is very difficult. I think you saw this in the debates in the EU about um, uh, migrants because, you know, when Greece and Italy were really struggling, when they said, well, look, we should be sharing them out with other EU countries and various other EU countries said, well, no, why, why not? And the, I think the Greece and Italian argument was, well, it's only an accident of geography that we're most exposed to this problem. And so therefore, you should, there should be burdens. It, it's very difficult to see how you solve it. I also think the, one of the other things that makes this very difficult is, you know, countries have signed up to lots of... So, you can you are entitled to asylum if you have a valid fear of persecution. I, I think you could quite easily argue that any woman in Afghanistan has a valid fear of persecution. Think of how we talk about the Taliban and how you know they treat women. I mean that you know that that is not. But are we actually serious about the idea that if they could make it to this country, every woman in Afghanistan could claim asylum here? I mean, are, I mean, are we? Question mark. I, I I think this is one of the problems. And I mean, there is this 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 issue, which is you know, how, you know, obviously in an ideal world you would go upstream and solve these problems. You wouldn't have these wars in the Horn of Africa that are leading to more people on the road. You wouldn't have the Taliban and a massive famine about to occur in, in Afghanistan. But I think even if you could solve all of those problems, and this is a point that Fraser Nelson makes, and and I think it's very true, which is actually it is 
pe- the, the pe- often the people on the, uh, coming are not coming from the very poorest countries. They've got some money and they are trying to improve their lives in a very human and understandable way. And I think the question then becomes, you know, what do rich Western countries do about this? And I, I think there is... I think it is very hard to think of, of how you deal with this problem. I mean, there is no doubt, to my mind, to talk about like one example where someone has dealt with it. You know, Poland dealt with the issue on its Belarusian border. I think it is quite clear. I mean, the, the Poles had a media and NGO exclusion zone. I think you can guess why they wanted a media and NGO exclusion zone. I think it's quite clear from even what the Poles' descriptions of their own tactics that they were breaking international law and international conventions. In that, you know. Technically, anyone who got to Polish soil should have been able to claim asylum there. I mean, the Poles were actively pushing them back. That is technically against international law. But, you know, people fought in a situation where where, where Belarus is actively bringing migrants in to, to, to use them almost as a weapon. That, that is an understandable result. But I think this is very difficult. And I think you see this with the tactics being used in the Aegean, where, you know, very aggressive turn-back techniques being be, 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 be sanctioned by the EU, you know, how does all this work? What I mean, what are the solutions to these problems? And I think this is, I think in a way, everyone needs to go back to the drawing board because the current situation just isn't working. And Katie, back in Westminster, we have yet another one of these uh, number 11, number 10 headlines um, from the Times today. It says Rishi Sunak is losing patience with the maelstrom of chaos at number 10. So the feud between the neighbours continues. Yeah, I think there are always tensions in number 10 and number 11 in any premiership. If you look at David Cameron and George Osborne, I think it's one of the, the more smoother relationships. But, you know, you have to think long back to think of these feuds. So I think it's working out really how dif- different this is to previous, how serious. And I think that there are clearly ideological differences between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. I think in terms of the budget we recently had from Rishi Sunak, were Rishi Sunak Prime Minister, would he have spent so much money? I doubt it. But he is obviously Chancellor to Boris Johnson, who does want to spend money. And I think we see many of those tensions. I think what's happened this week is old, uh, you know, rivalries, uh, you know, light paranoia about what number 11 is doing, you know, concern in number 11 about the fact that number 10 can often be quite chaotic in comparison to, to how the treasury operates has come back to the surface because we've had weeks of negative coverage and ultimately the narrative changing from Boris Johnson spurred by the own Patterson mishandling. And this week, when there was that quote from Laura Koonsberg um, by a Downing Street source, ultimately suggesting that something had to change in how Boris Johnson runs his operation, figures in Downing Street were quite quick to try and blame um, members of Rishi Sunak's team for that, because technically they all work in Downing Street. So it could be a treasury source. Now, they deny that. But I think regardless of who actually said it, the fact that you've ended up in this, uh, you know, briefing war, which is now leading to more days of coverage points to the fact that there are quite a few difficulties in that relationship and there are at least, you know, a handful of people in Downing Street who would like to change at minimum who works for Rishi Sunak and perhaps who is Chancellor in some way or form eventually. So I think there are stresses in that relationship, but I think it does go a bit further than just the usual if, if you look at quite brutal briefings this week. And I think it's partly in a way, if number 10 are under pressure, I think that you do start getting a bit of blame game, passing the blame to others. Uh, and I think this is a theme that will just pop up, particularly when 
Boris Johnson is under stress, but it is something we see kind of come to the surface here and there. I think it was interesting. I mean, last night we had our Parliamentarian Awards and Rishi Sunak won Politician of the Year. I think probably not helping the rivalry is the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson's neighbour is more popular than him if you look at approval ratings and <laughs> things like that, I think. When when you're under pressure, you can start to see what people say, well, is this person helping or is this person making me look bad by comparison? And you can also hear a little bit of Rishi Sunak's acceptance speech here. Wow. Gosh, I, uh, I am, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful uh, for this. I, the, the good news is it only costs £400 billion. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and from former senior political leaders like Theresa May. Um, but, uh, but thank you. I think this, this shows that actually there is life after high office. But I do feel I should say a thank you to all those people who have helped me on the way to winning this award. The first thank you, of course, goes to all those of my parliamentary colleagues who ensured that I was on the back benches. <laughs> James, what did you make of um, the speeches last night and especially the surprisingly funny, I thought, comments from certain politicians? Look, Theresa May has a habit at, at, at these kind of events of telling slightly risque jokes and also just having just enough needle in her speech when she looked out at the room and said, you know, I'm grateful to my colleagues for allowing me to spend more time on the backbench so I can see some of you here tonight. There was an element of that. I also think what is clear is that, that she is has no plans to a stop being a backbench MP and b stop being difficult for the government on issues where she thinks the government are wrong which there are quite a few as we've we've seen in the last year and so I think that she is it is going to be that kind of thing I also think that you know she's obviously the most extreme example of this but one of the problems for any prime minister is over time you get a series of people who feel that their chances of you know ministerial preferment are gone and they become almost unwhippable and I think one of the worries for Boris Johnson you know something that Katie pointed out this week you know on that vote on health and social care you know they had to bust the cabinet back from a dinner to make sure that they, that they won it it doesn't feel at the moment like a government with a majority of 80 we're back to whenever anything is talked about everyone's saying well have the government got the votes for that and that that is the time and I think that's not helped by the fact that relations between number 10 and the whip's office are in a very bad place I mean the whip's office feel very burnt by the by the fact the chief whip took so much of the blame for the um, Baston thing they think that blame was directed his way unfairly by people in number 10 so you've clearly got that tension there and uh, one thing I said in the magazine this week is that when when backbenchers can sense that there's daylight between number 10 and the whip's office parliamentary discipline can begin to unravel really quite quickly James and Katie, thanks very much. And you can hear all of the acceptance speeches from politicians, including Liz Truss, Sajid Javid and Nadim Zahawi, on the Spectator's Coffee House blog. Uh, we can put a link in the description for that. And remember, you can sign up to Isabel Hardman's Evening Blend newsletter as well, which is free every single day at spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow. Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale and you'll get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but we'll also send you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch Whiskey absolutely free. Hurry though, as this offer ends on Monday. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale.